It's certainly a joy to be here with you this morning. Um, the rest of your staff decided to leave town. So if there's anything you want to change about kind of how things run around here, just let me know. Something that we can, uh, we'll fix it. Uh, certainly glad again to be here with you. Uh, I'm Daryl. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, I serve our Midtown 12 South congregation uh, typically. So it's, uh, it's kind of fun to get on this side of town and, uh, and see what's going on. See what you guys have going on over here across the bridge. Uh, so uh, just thankful again to be with you um, as we have been uh, together as, uh, as a family of churches walking through uh, a new summer series uh, around, uh, revolving around the Apostles' Creed. And what uh, uh, the Apostles' Creed is, is um, one of the church's most ancient documents that we have uh, is, is the Apostles' Creed. It came around uh, the second or third century. We're not positive. Uh, we're actually not even positive who wrote it. Um, we, we named it the Apostles' Creed, but I don't think they had anything to do with it. Um, but what it does is offers a very succinct, uh, yet really robust uh, theological um, summary of what we are to believe as Christians. And so as we look at the creed and we ask ourselves, um, why does believing matter? Uh, what do we say when we believe uh, in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth? Uh, what do we say when we... Uh, say we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And as we'll get to this morning, uh, what do we say when we mean, uh, when we believe um, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate? What does that have to do uh, with me as I'm here in 2022? What does that mean for the church uh, universal? What does that mean for uh, even the church historical? And so that's where we'll be uh, this morning. We're gonna be in the book of Philippians. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, uh, Philippians chapter two. Uh, we're going to be in verses 3 through 11. So let's give our attention uh, this morning to the reading of God's holy word from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, this morning, uh, we ask uh, so desperately that you would join us, um, that you would uh, come true on your promise that where two or three are gathered, uh, that you are there in the midst thereof. Uh, and so, Jesus, we ask uh, you would make your presence known to us. Uh, that as you have promised us that you'll be in your house, you promise us that you'll be with your people, uh, would you come through on those promises? Uh, would you let us know uh, that you are the, the God who loves us? Let us know that you're the God who sees us. Uh, and so Jesus, uh, this morning even, uh, with all the sadness that we bring, uh, all the sorrow that we bring, uh, even all the celebration and the joy, uh, would you remind us that um, even uh, as powerful as those things feel, um, that you are uh, even greater still. And so, Jesus, we would leave here rejoicing, uh, saying that you have done great things if you would do these things. Uh, in your name, we do pray. Amen. 
so as I uh, had just read and as I had said in the intro, uh, we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed. Um, and we don't preach the Apostles' Creed because the, the Apostles' Creed isn't Scripture. Uh, so it doesn't have any authority over us. Uh, we know that Scripture does. And so we always want to look at Scripture to uphold uh, anything that we believe. And so uh, that's why we chose the Philippians passage this morning. So there's going to be three things we'll see out of this passage. Uh, Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man and that Jesus is forever reigning. And so uh, let's look again uh, back at Philippians 2, verse, uh, starting with verse 3 is where we'll dive in. Uh, that we see in this passage in Philippians is one of the more well-known passages. If you spent time around uh, Christianity or spent any time around the church, uh, this, is, uh, this is sort of a, a popular passage to reference in who uh, Jesus was and kind of what his mission was on earth. Uh, because it's a passage that really does a great job of outlining who uh, Christ was and how Christians are to respond in light of what Paul writes about the person and the work of Jesus. And uh, one thing that Paul tells us to do here is to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility to value others above yourself. And as always, in typical Paul fashion, uh, in Pauline fashion, as he writes any of his letters, uh, Paul always tells us what to do but he never separates that from what is ultimately true. Uh, and what's ultimately true here, what Paul wants us to see is that Jesus is fully God. If we look again at, at verse five, Jesus who being in the form of God did not, did not count equality as something to be grasped. And Paul is dropping y'all a massive uh, truth bomb here that the drafters of the Apostles' Creed know to be true and what everyone else uh, to use in defense of what they believe. And it's the simple yet profound truth that Jesus is God. That Jesus is absolutely God. Uh, that before uh, time began, before we have any of the writings of history, that Jesus dwelled with God the Father before even uh, the foundations of the world were laid, uh, we learn in scripture, before the beginning of all things, that when he entered, um, and that when he entered earth, when he became God, um, God with a bod, as they told us at my youth group lock-in. Uh, so before he even did that, he was as much God as he was this uh, tiny baby because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now that's super confusing and we don't even have the time to explain what that means. So you're welcome. Uh, but we really have zero category for this because it's never been done. Uh, it hadn't been done at any point before the first Christmas. It hasn't been done since the, the first Christmas. That this Jesus was no ordinary child and this was no ordinary birth. This was the God who spoke things into creation coming down to be with his creation. Uh, there is zero precedent for this. Uh, even in some of the Greek mythology, even in some of the kind of the more obscure world religions, anytime the gods visited the earth, it was to get something from the earth. We saw this in Guardians of the Galaxy. Anytime that someone all powerful comes down to get something from the earth, or comes to earth rather, is to get something from the earth. But Paul is coming here and saying that when God comes down, when he came down in the form of Jesus, Paul is saying here that when Jesus, who was fully God, came to dwell with his creation, it wasn't to pillage his creation. It was to serve them. Remember what Paul says here, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. 
He tells us that because he wants us to see that Jesus did nothing out of selfish ambition and Jesus did nothing out of conceit. That the word for conceit there is the word kinodoxia in Greek. Uh, what this means is that uh, is glory empty. So what we're looking to do is for someone to give us glory. Uh, that when we seek uh, vain conceit, we're saying, I have glory that needs to be filled and I'm gonna get it from wherever I can get it. And if you don't give it to me, I'll just go somewhere else. And Paul is saying that when, uh, when we follow Jesus, that the mark of God's kingdom is not folks walking around trying to see what they can get for themselves, that what we see in God's kingdom, what marks God's kingdom is humility. That humility is the marking of God's people. And in, in a city like ours, and in a time like this, y'all, humility is a tall glass of water on like a June afternoon. Humility says, I can bring you service. And through my humility, begin to parch, uh, begin rather to, to quench the parched souls that have been run dry from this rat race of ambition, from being on the hamster wheel, from uh, being on the mom blogs, from being on the treadmill, from uh, making money we don't need, uh, to buy things we don't want, to impress people we don't like. Jesus is saying, that's not the mark of my people. That's not what God does. That's not who Jesus is. That he is one who is humble. And Paul implies that it isn't only the Christians, that it's only rather in the Christian story that you find this. That it's only in the Christian story that the search for glory, that the search uh, to be propped up, to be trumped up, uh, doesn't exist. That it's only in the Christian story that service is this race to the basement. It has turned everything upside down and it's never the other way around. And that when equality with God was there to be grasped, Paul tells us, Jesus didn't take it. He didn't do what Adam did uh, in the garden. Uh, if you remember the story uh, in the book of Genesis of the fall of man, if you remember in the garden that it was this great lie, the devil had two parts. Uh, the devil told Adam and Eve, uh, you won't die if you take that fruit and you'll be like God. You're not gonna die, you're gonna be like God. You'll live forever and people will worship you. That's all the devil has. He's, he employs the same tricks over and over again. He's not very creative. And this is what Paul is saying that when, we, that when Adam had the opportunity and Eve had the opportunity to walk away from the devil's uh, lies, Think of what the devil is saying here. You'll be like God. People will worship you. You'll get to call the shots. You'll be in charge. You'll be in control. Um, people will be afraid of you. People have to love you. You get to take credit for everything. Go ahead, Adam. Go ahead, dude. Take a bite. Take a bite of the fruit. And Jesus, the true Adam, Paul says in Romans, comes along and says, no, no. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to submit to God the Father. I'm not going to chase after other things because I have all that I need in the hands of God the Father. 
everything I need, everything that the devil promises me, everything that the world holds out for me, Jesus says, I have in the arms of my father. And instead of grasping for that equality, I'm going to grasp at humility and I'm going to go down to, uh, to earth. I'm going to go down to my creation and show them that it's possible for them too. That if they grab a hold of me, as I have grabbed a hold of this humility, they can be made right with the father. I'm gonna go through the ultimate humiliation. I'm gonna become like them. I'm gonna leave heaven. I'm gonna go to earth, I'm gonna become like them. Which brings us to our second point, fully man. If we look again at verses seven through nine in this passage, Jesus goes from being in the form of God, Paul describes, to assuming the form of man. He becomes like us. He becomes just like us. He has bones, he has tissue, he has body fat. He has bad hair. He, this is what is, is so important for the drafters of the creed to include in the humiliation of Christ because the dominating thought in the second and third century and the dominating thought in 2022 is this ancient heresy known as Gnosticism. My friend Les says that if you squeeze American Christianity, it's Gnosticism that comes out. Now, what does that mean? It's a weird word. Uh, Gnosticism with a broad brushstroke is this belief that, and it's this ancient heresy, that only things that are spiritual matter and things that are physical don't matter. Things of the earth don't matter. Like it's all going to burn. Who cares? It's only the spiritual things that matter. So Jesus could be God, the Gnostics would say, like that's easy to believe, but he can't be a human because none of this matters. And God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't stoop himself. So he might be God and he might have like a little bit of humanity dribbled in, like a little bit folded in just to create the recipe that is Jesus. But Jesus is coming and saying, I'm fully God and fully man. And the Gnostics would not believe this because what the Gnostics truly wanted was freedom through knowledge. That's what the word Gnostic means. It's secret knowledge. They believed that there was, if you obtained a certain level of wisdom and a certain level of understanding, then you would find freedom. Welcome to Nashville freaking Tennessee. That if you just like find your Enneagram type, just dive into that, go to Sage Hill, drop $10 billion on their counseling, go do that. If you just do those things, if you just dive into that and you just dive into this understanding of who you are, then you'll figure it out. And look, I love the Enneagram. I love Sage Hill. They've taken some of my money. I like them. But what Jesus is saying is that when it comes to the Gnostic idea that dominates the world, that if you just learn enough, if you learn enough about who you are, if you just, just bury your nose in a book and figure it out, you don't have to rely on God because God is a liar. He's not fully God and he's not fully man. And Jesus is coming in and saying, there is no level of enlightenment that you think you can achieve. There's no amount of money that you think you can spend to, to dive into the depths of yourself. What you're going to find there is me. That's what John Calvin says. The more we know about ourselves, the more we understand about God. 
And then the inverse, the more we understand about God, the more we know about ourselves, we can't separate the two. That freedom doesn't come by going deeper into yourself or by obtaining a level of knowledge that no one else has. It only comes through me. And by Jesus coming in a body, by Jesus becoming fully human, he is slapping Gnosticism in the mouth because he is proving that the material world matters. It matters. And if it matters, if your body matters because Jesus is fully God and he's fully man, it means that Jesus cares and he has a say on how we treat our bodies. It means that Jesus cares and he has a say on how we talk about our bodies. It has a, he cares and he has a say on what we put into our bodies, over how we handle it. He has, a, he has a say over our sex lives. He gives us limits to rest. Jesus, by becoming fully man, means that man can be fully redeemed. And it means that he knows what betrayal feels like. Jesus becoming fully man means that he knows what it's like to have friends leave him. He knows what it's like to be homesick. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to be outcast, to be falsely accused. Jesus knew deep joy and he knew deep sadness. He knew rejoicing and he knew regret. In short, Jesus can empathize with you. He can empathize with you. He doesn't just offer sympathy. He doesn't just say, I'm sorry. He comes in and says, I'm sorry because I know how hard this is. Whatever trial you're going through, wherever your heart is a little crooked, wherever you're struggling, Jesus comes in and says, I understand this. And isn't that the best kind of friend to have? The best kind of counsel to get is from someone who could come and say, I know what it's like to lose a kid because I've done it. I know what it's like to have crazy parents. I know how hard this is. I know what it's like to have a kid that doesn't sleep. And I'm not gonna tell you what to do to fix that. I'm just gonna sit here with you. Jesus is coming and saying, I understand you because I became you. I know what it's like to be human. I know what it's like to not have a house. I know what it's like to be scared. I know what it's like to run for your life. I know what it's like to throw a demon into a bunch of pigs. I don't get that one. But Jesus understands what it's like to be human because he was human. And he's looking at the world and he's looking at the Gnostics and he's looking at all of us and saying, I'm redeeming all of this. That in Revelation 21, I'm making a new heaven and a new earth that are gonna come down. I'm renewing all things. As Andrew Peterson said, God isn't making all new things. He's making all things new. So when he comes in and says, I'm fully God, I'm so transcendent, you'll never get to me. But I'm also so imminent and in front of you that I can make a path to get to the Godhead and it comes only through me becoming like you and dying on a cross and taking your place. And Jesus does all of this without giving up the fact that he's the king of the universe. He's fully God, he's fully man, he doesn't get rid of his godliness, he doesn't get rid of his deity, when he assumes the form of a man, which means that he is forever reigning, which is gonna bring us to our last point. If you'll look with me at verses nine through 11, Paul closes out this passage uh, by saying, fully God, Jesus, uh, fully man, Jesus, 
uh, is reigning forever. And Paul is saying, don't get it wrong. He isn't just man. He isn't just God. He's all, uh, he's both of those things all the time. And that creation hinges on him. Uh, everything hinges on Jesus being who he is. And then all of us have a choice to make. If he's fully God and he's fully man and he is who he says he is, then we have a choice to make. Is Jesus who he says he is? Or is he just the next person in a long list of disappointments? Is he the God of the universe or is he a nut job? Is he who he says he is? And Paul is saying there is coming a day when this Jesus we speak of, uh, this Jesus who sat with the woman at the well, this Jesus who comforted the woman who couldn't stop bleeding, the one who told Zacchaeus, come down from that tree uh, and you'll find salvation and I'll come to your house, who told the disciples, let the little children come to me, let no one stop them. The Jesus who stood on a hillside and wept for his great city, the Jesus who stood next to his friend Lazarus' grave and wept uh, that death had taken someone he loved. The Jesus of scripture, the Lord of creation, Paul says, is exalted above all. And because of this, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. That's the choice we have to make. Are we gonna bow our knee willingly or is he gonna make us bow it? That's the choice that we have to make. As N.T. Wright said, what will you do now that the hurricane has become human? That the hurricane the all-powerful God has become human who dwells in a mortal body who has made salvation open and available to you through his perfect obedience to the laws and demands. He's made salvation open and available to you through his death on the cross in our place, through his rising again, through his ascension and being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Even at this moment, Jesus has made salvation available to us which is why we have communion this morning. That's why we come to the Lord's table, uh, that for just a moment we get to, as John Calvin says, poke our head into heaven and experience the glories that lie within. That when we come to communion, what we're saying is, I cannot save myself, Jesus, I need you. I need you. Communion is Jesus saying, it took me dying on a cross to offer you salvation. This is what it took. And he does this willingly. That, that Jesus, who knew no separation from God on the cross, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you'll never have to know what that feels like. The Jesus who, when his father turned his back on him and left him alone and darkness descended, you'll never have to know what that feels like because Jesus took that for us. It's the Jesus who goes after lost things. The Jesus who promised that everything sad is going to be made right. The one who moved heaven and earth to buy you back from the auction block of sin. That is the Jesus that we confess in the creed. That is the Jesus that Paul is talking about here in Philippians. That when the accuser, that when Satan, that when the evil one whispers in your ear, I can't believe what you've done. Look how shameful you are. Look how terrible you are. This is how you should feel about all the things that you have done, Satan whispers in her ear. How dare you go to that church with what you did last night and you could sit there and listen to some sermon? How dare you? And it's the sweet, even sweeter whisper of Jesus that comes in and says, all those things might be true. 
That's what makes Satan such a turd is that sometimes he's true. It's like, that's right. I did do that. But Jesus comes in and says, even though those things are true, I want you to know what's truer is that you belong to me. What's more true is that this guy doesn't love you. What's more true is that I'm the one who bought you. I'm the one who redeemed you. I'm the one that brought you back from the dead. That I'm the one who's in the business of salvation when the evil one is in the business of destruction. And it's Jesus who said, let's not let another moment pass that we don't do business with him. That if we're wayward, that we can come back home. That if we don't know who Jesus is at all, if we've not placed our trust in him uh, and rest and receive in him alone for salvation, that he can be our only shot of salvation this morning. And we don't have to leave here in that spot because of his table. Because of his table, we can come forward and say that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, this morning, man, Jesus, we want that to be true. We want it to be true that you are the one uh, who is the great lover of our souls. You are the one who has bought us back. You've redeemed us from the pit. All those quips and all those phrases and all those sayings, Lord, we just want them to be true. Uh, Lord, would you show us that it is. In these next few moments as we sing uh, of your great love for us, as we sing of all that you have done for us, uh, as we partake of these elements, uh, would you show us that it's true. Uh, Show us that it's too good not to be true. And that you are the one who loves us. And it's in your name we do pray. Amen.